I can't tell you how excited Linda and I are to be with you today. And uh, my elders over in Walnut uh, in Texarkana, I told them the other day that the elders here called on short notice and they said, well, they owe us one. So if we call on short notice and say Patrick needs to come to Texarkana some Sunday, y'all be uh, considerate about, about that as well. <clears throat> Oh, there's much to do today. It's a great day, and, and uh, I'm excited about this chance to share with you. You know, you bring old preachers back to talk about the old times. But one of the things I want to do today is what preachers always do. Preachers stand between the past and the future. We stand between the past and the present. Part of preaching, the responsibility is to go back and bring the cross to the modern time and make the cross a contemporary event in our lives so that we come to understand that even though Jesus died 20 centuries ago, his death is very much a part of our faith today. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we sit in this place today, this place called Lamar Avenue Church of Christ. This church is a very much a part of our past. It's a part of our present. And frankly, we hope it's going to be a part of our future as well. Now, we have some Bibles here this morning, so I want to begin by reading a passage of Scripture on the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2. And when Peter began to preach, he did what all preachers do. He read a text, he quoted a passage, and he reached back hundreds of years prior to his time, and he quoted from the prophecy of Joel. And in Acts chapter 2, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and it says in verse 16 and following, uh, Peter says, and what's happening today, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour of my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Sons and daughters will prophesy, young men will see visions, and old men will dream dreams. Now I realize that in the context, we're talking about ways by which God would make his revelation known in those early generations of the church. There would be people who would share the word prophesying, talking about God, and not necessarily predicting, but proclaiming the word of God. There would be visions and there would be dreams. And God has used these avenues, uh, at least uh, in early years, uh, for revelation to take place, for people to come to know his will. I'm not suggesting today that we fit just the context of this passage, but I will tell you there are some words here that are very important. Seeing visions, having vision, and dreaming dreams. That's what keeps a church alive. From the very beginning, God had in mind that the church would move forward, that it would be like a mustard seed. The kingdom would begin small, but there's, there's not anything wrong with staying small, but that was not God's intention, that it would grow like a small mustard seed and the kingdom would spread throughout uh, the corners of the earth. 
Part of what I want to do today is go back to the past, and I don't want to linger there. And then something else I want to do is this. The last 40 years, it's been our privilege to work with three congregations, starting here in 1977, moving to Arlington in 1988, and moving to Texarkana in 1999. Those three congregations have existed for an average of 115 years. Now in four years, whether you know it or not, this congregation will represent 150 years of history in Paris, Texas. Just right after the Civil War, this church began. There are not many churches west of the Mississippi River that have that kind of a heritage. The church in Arlington started in 1913, downtown Fort Worth. Linda and I went back there uh, two years ago to speak and preach for their 100th anniversary. What a blessing. And in five years, our congregation in Texarkana will celebrate its 100th anniversary. What I want to do briefly this morning from experience in churches that are old established congregations and still alive and still thriving, I want to share with you some things that I think make, uh, that have made those churches what they are today. These are not dead churches and they're not dying churches. They're very much alive and thriving and will continue to do so. But before we do that, let's go back to the past. To these young people this morning, as a historian, you know the, the, the the time frame in America that I really am enamored with is the Old West. And this was the Old West back in the 1860s and 70s and 80s. And some of the preachers that came into this area, one was uh, Uncle Charlie Carlton, they called him. Charlie Carlton had moved to Bonham, Texas, uh, right after the Civil War from Springfield, Missouri, where he had helped establish a congregation there that's still very strong and active. And then he came over here in 1869 and he preached a series of meetings, as you may have read and may know about. And ultimately the result was about 80 folks were gathered up and it became the roots of Lamar Avenue Church. Charlie Carlton was from from England. How did he get to America? As a kid, he was a stowaway on a ship. And he came to America and somehow... He became acquainted with the preaching and the teaching of a man named Alexander Campbell. And ultimately he went to Campbell's College at Bethany College in Virginia. And there he was trained for ministry. His roommate happened to be a fellow that many of you might have read after if you've read J.W. McGarvey's commentary on Acts. And J.W. McGarvey's son, J.W. Jr., was a minister in this church in the 1880s. That's, that's Carlton. That's Charlie Carlton. He goes back to the very beginning. But even before Carlton was here, there was a preacher named James Baird, Bairdstown, and all of that family had come from Limestone County, Alabama, where they had been baptized by Alexander Campbell and also influenced strongly by the Restoration leader, Barton W. Stone. Then there were some really... Uh, hair-raising preachers, I guess you could say, some Old West cowboy-type preachers that came, and one of them was named R.W. Officer. R.W. Officer came here in the 1880s 
From Tennessee, a lot of the preachers in those early days were coming from the east. Many of them were being trained over in Nashville at the Nashville Bible School under David Lipscomb and James Harding. And they began to, to migrate west. And wherever they came, they started the church. And generally in the church, they started a school. They were the most educated people in the community. They were called the parson. That meant they were the person in the community. They were the, the smartest, well, maybe not the smartest, but they were the most educated. They knew the Bible, and the schools would meet in the church buildings, and so Christian education was very much a part of the establishment of the Lord's church as on the western frontier, as we might call uh, Texas during those days in the 1840s and 1850s. So uh, R.W. Officer came and he wanted to go up into Indian Territory and help start some industrial trade schools among the Indians. This church, along with the church in Gainesville, Texas, then sent R.W. Officer over into Indian Territory where he converted uh, many Christian, many uh, Indians to Christianity and established some schools. As a matter of fact, my good friend Silas Shotwell wrote a major paper on him at OSU and called R.W. Officer the father of modern education in Oklahoma, starting back in the 1880s. One day, Officer, guys, Listen to this. Officer was traveling by train from Gainesville over into Ardmore, Oklahoma, or Indian Territory. You've heard of Jesse James. Have you heard of the Dalton Gang? The Dalton Gang robbed the train. And so Officer said we all had to get off the train. We had to stand out there in the sunshine with our arms up for about an hour. He said there were actually people who were fainting. And he said the Dalton gang came by and they were frisking everybody and taking things of value. And he said they came to me and they asked, do you have a pocket watch? He said, no. He said, as a matter of fact, now this is the preacher from this church. He said, the only thing I have of value on me is my New Testament. And you're welcome to it. They didn't take the offer. <laughs> Officer converted an Indian chief up in Atoka. And the Indian chief had two wives. Well, he decided after he'd baptized him, I need to talk to him about Christian marriage because he said, I told the chief, you can't be a Christian and have two wives. He said, what you need to do is you need to keep old woman for wife and keep young woman for daughter. The chief thought for a moment and said, hmm, we'll keep old woman for mother and we'll keep young woman for wife. <laughs> now let's move to a fellow named F.D. Shrigley, Fletcher Douglas Shrigley. He did not live a long life. He preached here in his early days. He was trained under T.B. Larimore at the Mars Hill Bible uh, Academy in Florence, Alabama, Limestone County. Great preachers come from Limestone County, Alabama. That's our heritage, the Canons. We came to Arkansas from that same county about the same time. The ones that could read came on to Oklahoma and Texas. The others stayed in Arkansas. <laughs> Now, F.D. Shrigley, I'm going to read a little bit from his excerpt because when things went kind of bad here in town as far as the church was concerned and there was a, a major division in the year of uh, 1891, 
And it had begun early in the late 80s. And Strigley had preached here from 1880 to 1882. He had left Paris and moved back to the Tennessee and had become what was called the front page editorial or art editor of the Gospel Advocate, one of our Brotherhood papers. And it was during his editorship of the Advocate that Brother Strigley heard of the division of the church in Paris. And upon receiving information from brethren in Paris, Strigley wrote the following article. And I've included this in that history, which is 35 years old now. But these words will tell you more about what was going on in this church in 1880 than anything in print. And I'm not reading it all. But I want to share with you the wit of F.D. Strigley, who died before he was 45. He said, I moved to Paris, Texas in December 1880. I was then but a few months out of college and scarcely started in my uncertain career as a preacher of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Paris church of those days was small, poor, unpopular, and even despised by the rich and fashionable circles of society, but faithful to the Lord and united in love. The meeting house, the church building, was a plain wooden structure downtown on a side street in what was then an undesirable part of town. There were neither sidewalks nor pavements on that street in those days. You'll appreciate this now. When the weather was wet, we waded the mud down the middle of the street. And when it was dry, we sneezed through the dust to the place where prayer was wont to be made. But whether it was wet or dry, and it seemed nearly always on one extreme or the other, we managed to get there on time and in full force. Now, the singing of our congregation was not up to the standard of a fashionable city church in the matter of fine clothes and bad manners, but the singing was indeed a joyful noise unto the Lord. The congregation in the main had good voices and fair musical education, and the few who lacked either or both were always encouraged to join heartily in the singing as an important part of the worship, even if they couldn't sing a tune. Uncle Jerry Hamilton wore a homespun shirt and said, Doggone it, in a whisper when he lost the tune. And old Mother Edget sometimes held the book wrong end up and sang sketches of amazing grace when the rest of us were trying to read our titles clear to the mansions in the skies. But we wouldn't have exchanged any of them, and this was the famous opera singer of the day, we wouldn't have exchanged any of them for Jenny Lynn because we love them and they love the Lord. Well, the church was growing and Strigley was being invited out into neighborhood uh, area to preach in meetings at, at Bairdstown and at Moore Springs and Honey Grove and other places. And so he says, with a view to better equipment for missionary work, I gave $20 for a second-hand buggy and $5 for a horse, not quite as wild as a deer and a little larger than a sheep. The buggy had no top, the cushion leaked moss and two of the wheels wobbled, and the horse proved to be about an equal mixture of original sin and actual transgression. 
with very decided and unyielding anti-missionary convictions thrown in for good account. Fortunately, however, he had the redeeming trait of some church members of like nature in that he delighted to graze in pastures green where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. As a missionary institution, now he's talking about his horse, as a missionary institution, he was a flat failure. So I put him in Brother Walker's pasture where he could have church privileges, as they might say, and nothing to do but wait for the snowy white angel band to come and take him home. (laughs) Brother Brown loaned me a horse as poor as Lazarus, as patient as Job, and as meek as Moses. And I started into all the world by way of Honey Grove to preach the gospel to every creature I could induce to hear during the week. Now what he's about to tell is what happened on a Sunday night when some young ladies came to church and Strigley at this time was a single preacher. He was in his early 20s. He said our audiences meantime continued to increase at Paris Sunday and Sunday night. And our hearts were often made glad by the conversion of souls to Christ. By chance, a fashionable belle of the aspiring little town wandered down our way one Sunday night with a dashing bow on her arm when the weather was at its best and the moon was nearing its full. She afterwards gave her opinion of the preacher to be a good old mother in Israel in these words as I now remember them when they were repeated to me. He has a beautiful eyes, he has, his voice is lovely, and if he had a fine house, if he had an organ, if he had a good choir and a fashionable congregation, he would be just splendid. If he could only board at the Peterson Hotel and go into society, he would be a leader in the pulpit of Paris. Imagine the effect on my nerves. Visions of white-robed angels and paradise lost. And when this was noised abroad, a whole school of female loveliness came marching into the little church one Sunday night, just as I was getting ready to go into the pulpit. I had all my arrangements made to preach on faith. But when I looked at those lovely creatures and remembered that one of my main proof texts in that sermon was, He that believeth not shall be damned. I hadn't the heart in me to do it. How could I talk to such a group of feminine loveliness as that about the danger of hell and everlasting damnation? No, I must save that sermon for men only. And think out something to preach more suitable for the occasion. Well, why not preach about the prodigal son? Oh, there's a wide field for gush and sentiment about the old homestead and a splendid chance to close out with a burst of pathos over the music and dancing and the glad reunion at the close. But there is that verse in the narrative which says, He would fain have filled his belly with the husk. Oh, the horror of it. How can I read such language before such an audience? Why not say that he would have fain filled himself with the husk? Is it really not necessary to state definitely in what part of his anatomy he proposed to store away the husk anyhow? Perhaps he merely wanted to put them in his pockets and take them home to his old mother. No, 
It will never do to talk to this audience about husk. Nothing coarser than the odor of choice flowers and the sentiment of a lover's dream will suit the occasion. I began to feel like the whole Bible was for men only. <laughs> and to wish I could exchange it for a copy of Byron's poems for at least for this once. I was all over in a perspiration, but here a happy thought struck me. I remembered a speech I had written out and committed to memory my second year in college, the title of which was Sunshine and Shadows. Oh, the substance of that sermon was pure gush. Why not hitch that old sophomore speech onto the text, Jesus wept. I did it. And the girls said it was just lovely. And I went home wondering whether I would swap my horse for a stovepipe hat and my buggy for a Prince Albert coat with a clerical collar. But when I met Uncle Jerry Hamilton on the street the next day, he said, doggone it, I, don't, I just don't believe them gals rattled you last night. Well, Uncle Jerry was right, and I was young. Things have changed in Paris since those days. He's writing ten years past the time he was here. The church has grown in numbers till a majority of the body favored a change of methods. They now have an organ and a choir and some societies and several other things. And more than 50 of the faithful old heroes who helped to build the house at a heavy sacrifice years ago have been compelled to give up their interest in the property or participate in things which they honestly believe the scriptures do not authorize them to do. And these are the ones who want to know whether Brother Srigley and the readers of the Advocate do not want to send them aid. And I answer for myself with all my heart, I want to help them. And I think others want to help them as well. And those who are like-minded with me should write at once to W.H. Sluter, the father-in-law of Fanny Sluter. Write to Brother Sluter, Paris, Texas, and send a congregation or contribution, and may the Lord help them. I just wanted to give you a little flavor of what was going on in this church in those early days. There's a lot of things that have happened since then. A lot of people have called this their church home. A lot of people have come to know the Lord through this congregation, through the preachers and the teachers and the elders and the leaders who have helped share their faith and lead them on their way uh, to the pearly gates. But here we are on this day, February 1st, 2015. Don't you remember just 15 years ago, everybody thought the world was going to come to an end if we hit a new millennium. But it didn't. The Lord hasn't returned. We're anticipating his return at any time. But we don't know when he's coming. And until he comes, we want to be found faithful serving him. Amen? Amen. And so... That dreaming dreams and seeing visions, this Vision Sunday, as your elders stand before you to share thoughts about a pathway, a map that might lead and serve as guiding points for this congregation, say, for the next decade or so. And it may reach out even further than that. But what's happening today is significant. It's significant because, in essence, as a congregation, 
we are affirming this is who we are, this is where we stand, and we are moving forward as a church. Now, a few years ago, just last year, uh, a man named Tom Rainier wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. I want to tell you some things he learned as he studied 14 dying churches throughout America of all kinds. Some were large, some had been extremely large, but they died. And these are some things I'll just start with from a negative standpoint that you need to know caused churches to die in our time. He says, number one, the church refused to look like the community. Number two, the church had no community-focused ministries. Number three, the members were more focused on memorials, remembering people of the past, and much argument was given over where plaques were going to be placed and, and what pews were going to be set aside. And he said, there's nothing, nothing wrong with memorials, but they spent too much time haggling over those kind of things. Number four, the percentage of the budget for members' needs kept increasing. And here's the idea that churches don't exist for themselves alone. But when a church starts to say, well, we want this and we want that and we need this and we need that. And we're spending our money on ourselves. We're spending the Lord's money on ourselves. It's a sure sign that the future does not look healthy. There were no evangelistic emphases within these congregations. When a church, he says, loses its passion to reach the lost, the congregation begins to die. Number six, the members had more and more arguments about what they wanted. And as the church continued to decline toward death, the inward focus of the members turned caustic and arguments were more frequent, business meetings became acrimonious and disagreeable and argumentative because the members saw the church as something that belonged to them and they wanted it just like they wanted it. And then he says in 7, the church rarely prayed together. Oh, they had corporate prayer in their times of worship, but very seldom were prayer meetings called for special occasions to call upon God, to give guidance and to give wisdom and to offer leadership. Number eight, the church had no clarity as to why it existed. There was no vision, no mission, and no purpose. And then number nine, he says, the members idolized another era. Now you may think that's what I've done this morning by going back to the past. It's not that those people are necessarily my spiritual heroes, but we need to know what they did because we stand on their shoulders today. But if the church continually focuses on a specific time and says that's the way church was and that's the way church should always be going back to the 50s or to the 70s or to the 80s or the 90s reaching back and always wanting to live in the past will kill a church finally it says the facilities continued to deteriorate some of our oldest congregations, we have a church building of the Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee that was built in 1855 and they're still meeting in it. All 25 of them. 
that church is where Perry Coffin's son preaches. And he said, John, when you come to Nashville, I want you to preach there. I'd like to preach there because Lipscomb preached there and Harding preached there. And, you know, it's a historical building. He said, mainly our building is used for leasing it out for weddings. But as a church, it's just a museum. It's no longer an active church. And so when facilities continue to deteriorate, we have to, as a church, and most churches this size, it's not a financial issue to get things looking better. It's not a financial issue even uh, to build, add on, relocate, whatever we need to do. Remember, this is not sacred ground. This church started downtown and moved and moved and moved and moved. And so we need to have the eyes of outsiders. Okay? We need to see our facilities the way other people might see them. And you have much to be proud of here. And there's always room for improvement. Now, these three congregations, Paris, Arlington, and Texarkana. Let me tell you what I've observed in thinking about this day, about those three churches. Well, they're all in different places. One's in a large metroplex area. Um, the churches range from five to six hundred members here and at, Par and at Texarkana. Frankly, folks, I can't remember where I preach from Sunday to Sunday. You know, I mean, I just, uh, they just all flow together. The church in Arlington claimed twelve to fifteen hundred members. But what I've seen in these churches is they've, they've been here for over a hundred years. And uh, they're strong churches today. There have been times in the history of all of these three congregations where they have been larger than they are now. Not much, but larger than they are now. Uh, so there was growth, there was increase, there was decline, there was growth again. And then it seems that all three of these congregations have reached a plateau. And you know that happens. It can happen with a church of 50, and it will be no more than a church of 50. All I know is this. As church, if the church wants to grow, you cannot continue to be a mom-and-pop grocery store on the corner when super Walmarts are across the street. You have to think differently. And the vision today is for this church to think big and to continue uh, to grow. Here's some things that I see... Ten things that are in common with these three churches that Linda and I have worked with the last 40 years. Every one of them have changed. Not a one of them has changed the message of the gospel. Not a one of them has budged an inch on the essential doctrines of Christianity. But they have changed. I remember when we were talking about a building like this. This church has changed. The things that this building provide and the ministries you've been able to develop just because of a facility has changed somewhat the nature of this church and its outreach into the community. So all of these three churches, they have been at different locations. They have had four to six different church buildings, different geographical areas. And every time those kind of things happen, it changes the context in which the church serves. Every congregation has its own context. 
and we need to determine the context of our church, the community in which we live, and we need to be the light and we need to be the salt, which means we've got to get into this community. We've got to help preserve the souls of this community. We cannot be a monastery isolated down here on a corner away from the rest of the people in our town. These churches have, as I said, they've peaked and they've plateaued. There have been neighborhood churches and now neighborhood churches have turned into county churches and area-wide churches. We'll say something about that as we go on. Something else I noticed about these three churches. Every one of them have placed a high premium on continuing to be a New Testament church. A church that is biblical, a church that is self-governed or autonomous, a church that believes that doctrine matters and that what we believe should affect our behavior. And so we ask these simple questions, don't we? Is it biblical or is it scriptural? Is it effective? Will it lead people to Jesus? Where I preach now, I stand on the Word of God. You say, well, John, you've always stood on the Word of God. I now literally stand on the Word of God. Because buried in the foundation under our pulpit is a Greek New Testament. <laughs> the elders said, we're going to put it there. And they said, well, what version? What translation? We had an educated elder that said, how about a Greek New Testament? We ain't got anybody that can read it if we dig it up. <laughs> but it's there as a symbol that our church stands on the Word of God. And so, when I preach, I preach from the Bible. And people come to our church because they want to hear the Bible proclaimed. They want to hear a word from the Lord on the Lord's day. Something else I've noticed about these three churches, they have good reputations in the community. Even at the outset in Jerusalem, the church had favor with all the people. They are churches that have a vision of mission and evangelism. They place a high priority on unity. They are progressive in mythology. These three churches that I've worked with are grace-oriented churches and not legalistic churches. They're not issue-oriented churches. The pulpit is filled with the Word of God and the words of Jesus and not words about the church across town or what's going on that's going downhill. We are churches that are trendsetters and leaders among area congregations. This church... Texarkana, Arlington, were congregations that always took the initiative to say to brethren in the area, let's get together, let's work together, let's serve together, let's worship together, let's praise God together so that our community knows that we are a people who love the Lord and we love each other and we are united. Not long ago, I wrote this about our congregation in Texarkana. I think it could be said of Lamar Avenue. I called our church a magnet for Jesus. There was a time when congregations ministered to their immediate surroundings, neighborhood, community, etc. 
It's not uncommon these days for people to drive 30 minutes to an hour to be members of an active congregation. And that is the trend that we are experiencing in Texarkana. I venture to say it's happening here. I know it was happening in Arlington, Texas. On a typical Sunday, pews are filled with folks in our congregation that come from a 50-mile radius. Some come from Paris occasionally. Why are people attracted to our congregation? Here are the bullets, and you make application to this church. We take a positive approach to Christianity. We are not a negative church. We are conservative in theology and progressive in methodology. We know the difference between truth and tradition. We have an active membership. We are a loving, caring, serving church family. We minister to every age group. We are balanced in our approach to ministry. We offer worship that is exciting and uplifting, and we encourage the use of every member's spiritual gifts. We believe every member is a minister, a true servant of the Lord, and we protect and promote the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We recognize diversity in the midst of unity. We're filled with the Spirit, we honor Christ, we glorify God, and we stand on the Word of God. Let me ask you, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? And so what we need is churches that possess those qualities to keep on serving and keep on loving like Jesus. And the Lord will keep on blessing. In these closing minutes, I want to read from that history of the church I wrote a few years ago. Some things that I think are appropriate to this day. As a matter of fact, these are words that are excerpts from a sermon that I preached here on Vision Sunday. Are you ready? May 20th, 1979. The Lamar Avenue Church of Christ has attained a remarkable past and a glorious history. She has been responsible for an effective mission program. She has reproduced herself by establishing other congregations and strengthening weak ones. She has experienced a spiritual stability and unity, I believe, as a direct result of the longevity of the service of her elders. She has maintained her strength and vitality in a community that, for the most part, has not been conducive to phenomenal church growth. The measure of a church is very elusive. How do you measure a church? The measure of a church is not always determined by facts and figures and numbers and statistics. How do you really measure changed lives and souls saved? How do you really measure services rendered and influences exerted? How do you really measure lessons taught and sermons preached? How do you really measure spiritual maturity? Well, it may well be said that a church is measured by these four things. The dreams it dreams, the, the values it redeems, the truth it speaks, and the destiny it seeks. Lamar Avenue must dream great dreams for the future. She must not let the future just happen. Deeds must first live in the thought of a congregation before they ever make it to reality. So the congregational expectations for this church, for the future, must be high. 
Lamar Avenue must value those things which characterize a great church. Spirituality, service, evangelism, soul winning, and faithfulness. The heart and attitude of the congregation must be right before it will be blessed of God. Lamar Avenue must continue to speak the truth. Continue to speak the truth. The Bible, God's Word, must be boldly proclaimed without compromise. She must constantly preach the Word. And in everything she does, the first concern should be, is it biblical? Lamar Avenue must never lose sight of her, her eternal destiny. God's church is heavenward bound. And may our ultimate goal be to build a great and glorious church to present to Jesus when he returns. Get this paragraph. There is no point in spending our time sighing for the church that was. Neither should we settle down in the church that is satisfied with the status quo. Which, by the way, Brother Keeble said that's Latin for the mess was in. We should make our goal the church that ought to be, even though we disturb all who rest at ease in Zion. We shall never attain it completely down here, but we can work toward it until that day that we join the church triumphant, the church that shall be. Did you get all of that? Are we going to stay the church that was? Are we going to stay the church that is? Are we going to become the church that we ought to be, the church that shall be? The need of the hour is for God's people in Paris, Texas, at Lamar Avenue Church of Christ, to catch the vision. Just think what can be accomplished by a people of vision. It's difficult to say what is impossible, for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. The past is gone, the present is rushing by, and the only thing we can change is the future. We can change the future of souls and homes, the church, the world, all of this we can change through faith in Jesus. Do we have the vision? Where there is no vision, the people perish, the people know defeat, the people experience sadness and disappointment. But where there is vision, the people of God know victory and they know happiness. A vision without a task is a dream. A task without a vision is drudgery. A vision and a task are the hope of the world. May God bless this church to have that kind of vision, to come up with the task and the objective goals that are necessary to make that vision become a reality. I hope to be a part of it with you one of these days. But in, in the case that the Lord should call any of us home before we have a reunion on this side of eternity, let's just keep on keeping on, folks. Let's trust our leaders but let's trust Jesus first. And let's hold our leaders accountable. Let's hold ourselves accountable to the Word of God. Let's work together in an agreeable fashion. And when we disagree, we don't have to be disagreeable. May God bless us to that end and bless this church to that end. Great things are yet in store for the Lamar Avenue Church of Christ. God bless each one of you. Amen.